All right, Revelation chapter 7, and let me tell you something, I have been anxious to get to chapter 7, and I just, tonight, I I hope it's not wrong for me as a pastor to uh, enjoy myself and what I do sometimes, and I tend, fully intend to enjoy preaching this message and just thoroughly destroying some of your typical pre-trib teaching that you see from the book of Revelation. And I, folks, I'm just going to obliterate it tonight and I'm just going to leave nothing left. And when there's nothing but a heap of ashes, I'm going to vacuum up the ashes and flush them down the toilet. All right? That's what I'm going to do with this pre-trib teaching. And I think we've already thoroughly destroyed it, but chapter 7, I mean, this is going to be the end of it. Okay, and There, there should be no doubt. Okay, After this message, while... I'm, I'm really upselling this thing right now, but I, I, I'm, I'm confident I'm going to deliver. All right? After this message, while you might not know every little detail about how things are going to play out in the end times, one thing you should know for sure is that the pre-trib teaching is an absolute fraud. And these people who uh, teach it are frauds and are just clueless when it comes to the Bible. They are clueless and are just parroting what they have been told. And so I fully intend to demonstrate some of this. So need to get going. I got a lot I want to cover. Really excited. I've just been I've been so anxious I can't stand it. So anyway, here we go. So, so verse one it says, After these things, after what things? After the six seals. Okay? But how many seals are there? There's seven seals, right? There were six seals and we saw the tribulation during that time. We saw the sun darken and moon turn to blood. And what is something that we know that comes after the sun is dark and the moon turned to blood. The day of the Lord comes after that. The rapture comes after the sixth seal. And it comes before the seventh seal because remember, once that seventh seal is broken, then we see the wrath of God because the book that we see in Revelation chapter 5, the book, inside that book, contains the wrath of God. And so once that seventh seal is broken, what we are going to see is the wrath of God. But we don't see the seventh seal broken until chapter 8. Because before that seventh seal can be broken, God's got some business He's got to take care of. There are some things that need to be done first. And one of those things is He's got to remove His people from the earth. Why? Because He has promised to deliver us from the wrath to come. So before that seventh seal can be broken... We see that God has to rapture us out of here. We are going to see that in this passage. But there's also something else He has to do. He needs to seal His servants, the 144,000. So let's keep reading. So after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. Now, what's this talking about? What does this mean, this vision of the four angels stopping the wind from touching anything on the earth, from not blowing the trees? What is that a picture of? I personally believe it's a picture. This represents God holding back His judgment. God's holding back His judgment. And so we see these angels, they're stopping anything from touching the earth until something, ha- until something happens. Until the believers get removed from the earth and until the 144,000 are sealed. Okay, Because, once again, God's going to deliver us from the wrath to come. Look at verse 2. I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. 
And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea. Alright, y'all see that? So this angel comes along to whom it was given uh, to hurt the earth and the sea. Said so this is being stopped. God's holding back judgment here. That's what's going on because some things need to be taken care of. Because so far, everything we saw in those six seals, we talked about this last week, none of it was supernatural. Okay, Until we see the sun darken and moon turn to blood, nothing supernatural had taken place. Wars, famines, pestilences, earthquakes, all of those things have been going on since the beginning of time. Okay, And until the sun was darkened and moon was turned to blood, we haven't seen anything supernatural. God has not began pouring His wrath out on the earth yet. Okay, So He's holding back. But supernatural events are about to begin. They, things are about to start happening. And so these angels, they're getting ready to hurt the earth, but they're being stopped until God can take us out. That's what we're seeing take place here in these first verses. Look at verse 3. It's saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of God, of our God in their foreheads. So the seal on the foreheads, all right, what is the purpose of this seal that the 144,000 have on their foreheads? There's a purpose for it. They're not doing it for nothing. Okay, it's, and it's very clear, I believe, they're doing this to protect them from angelic attacks, the things that come from God, and demonic attacks that come, that God allows the devil to do. Look what it says in chapter 9 verse 4. It says, and it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. So God has given them this mark so they will be protected. And I personally believe that the 144,000 will be protected while they're here on this earth. That's why God's marking them. God's doing that so they will be protected so the angels will know not to mess with them, so the demons will know not to mess with them. These people are off limits. Okay? And I am about to just annihilate what people teach about these 144,000 because this is where the dispensationalists go all nuts. You know, when we start showing all these things, just, you know, the evidence of a post-tribulation rapture, you know, they start saying, oh, it's all for the Jews. It's all for the Jews. Okay? And so they get so excited when we get here because of the fact, look, it says in verse 4, I heard the number of them which were sealed and they were sealed and 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. And now they can start talking about it's all about Israel. It's all about Israel. As soon as the church gets raptured out, the church age will have ended and God is going to go back to His dealings with Israel. And it's going to be back to the uh, you know Old Testament economy. And it's going to be a faith plus works, and you know, and they do, and then they just start talking about, you know, he's going to come and he's going to seal these Jews, you know, and he's going to go back to, you know, there's going to be this great revival, and these Jews are going to take the gospel all over the world, and there's just going to be this great multitude that no man could number, you know, and so that's how they teach it. They teach after the rapture. All of a sudden, there's going to be all these Jews that are going to figure it out. Why? Because the Jews require a sign. And don't even get me on that stupidity. All right? 
God's not going to give any sign. They already got their sign. Alright? And that was Jesus rising from the dead. They, and they rejected that. The Jews aren't going to get a sign, but that's what they teach. Jews are going to get a sign. All of a sudden, all these Jewish rabbis over there in Israel, they're going to get those Bibles that Brian Sharp's been smuggling over there and giving to them, those Hebrew Bibles, and they're all of a sudden they're going to say, well, this is, this is just like the Bible prophesied. Now, this is just like Bible says it's going to happen, and they're going to get saved. And if you go and you see Brian Sharp, whenever he's around, he's doing his presentation stuff, he's got pictures on his display of him with Israeli soldiers. You know what he always tells you? They're Jewish, they're male, and they're virgins. I wonder if he asks all of them that too, you know, when he's, ta- when he's talking to them. I don't know, but he, he, you know, he's always saying, you know, these potentially could be, you know, one of the 144,000. And the man is just, has no idea what he's talking about. And when you go and you put what we see in chapter 7 and chapter 14 of the 144,000, the amount of contradictions that comes from the pre-tribbers is just astounding. It is almost as many contradictions as they have when you look at their teachings on Matthew chapter 24. How they teach it's not the rapture, but then they say, no man knows the day or the hour. I mean, it is astounding the amount of contradictions. So let's, so let's, um, let's go ahead and read a little bit more of this. So we'll, we're not going to read it, but uh, when you get to cha- uh, verse 5, you know, it says, and of the tribes of Judah were sealed 12,000, and then it goes and it names off each of the tribes. Each tribe had 12,000 people that were sealed. So who are these 144,000? Okay? And the thing is, when you talk to you know your, your average pre-tribber, what I'm about to say, it's like they've never heard it before and they just think you've lost your mind because they've just never heard it before. It's not in any of their college textbooks that they got their doctrine from. It's not in Schofield's notes. So they don't, you know, they don't know what to do when they hear you say this, but I believe that they're Old Testament saints and I... I think there's no doubt that they're Old Testament saints. I I think it is extremely easy to prove that they are Old Testament saints. I personally believe, this is what I believe, we see them getting sealed at the same time we see the rapture taking place. Why is that? I'll tell you why that is. Because you know what? You can't seal their physical body until they get their physical body. You understand their souls that are in heaven, their bodies are still in the graves right now. However, at the rapture, they will be resurrected with the rest of us. But I believe when they get resurrected, then God's going to seal them in their foreheads and then He's going to send them down. That's what I, that's what I personally believe. And they are going to be witnesses on this earth. And so let's look at some of the uh, massive contradictions uh, well, let's go to chapter 14 first. So let's look at a little more information. Because the Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about it in chapter 7. All it does <clears throat> is it mentions how they were sealed. Alright? That's, that's really all it tells us. Well, in chapter 14, it says, I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion, <clears throat> and with him 144,000, having his father's name written in their foreheads. Now, we've got a problem here already with the pre-trib teaching on this. What are they doing with the Lamb on Mount Zion? Do you all realize that's in heaven? Well, there, and there is an earthly Mount Zion, and you all should know where earthly Mount Zion is because we just did a whole uh, presentation on it. That's where the Temple Mount was. Okay? Outside of Old City Jerusalem. 
Okay, does anybody think there is no pre-tribber that would say the 144,000 are standing on earth with Christ? Because Jesus hasn't come down to earth yet at this point. But notice what it says. It says they are with Him in Mount Zion. That's heaven. There is a heavenly Mount Zion. Hebrews talks about it. And so, notice too, they are in heaven. Alright, now get this. Alright, pay attention to this. Okay, any pre-tribber that's watching this, pay close attention to what I'm about to show you. Alright, you clowns want to say that the 144,000 all get saved right after the rapture. Okay? But here we see them all in heaven right before the mark of the beast. That, if you go, we're not going to take time to read it all, but chapter 14 deals with the mark of the beast. It mentions, um, in verse 9, it says, And the third angel followed him, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture in the cup of his indignation. We'll stop reading right there. So right here, it's saying in chapter 14, if you take the mark, you will suffer the wrath of God. You know what that means? God's wrath hasn't been poured out yet in chapter 14. That means the 144,000 are in heaven when the mark of the beast is implemented. Now, you got a huge problem. Now, you can say, well, they all got killed in the first half of the tribulation. Okay? That's the only way they can all be in heaven. If, they, if these are people who get saved after the rapture, they all get killed in the first half of the tribulation. Or, I don't know, there is nothing. I mean, that, that's what you would have to teach, right? But if they're going to teach that, they've got a massive problem. They have a, a massive problem. I'll show you here in just a minute. So look what it says in verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. Okay, And they like to say it and talk about they were saved in the tribulation. Okay? But once again... What are they doing in heaven before the mark of the beast has been implemented? Okay? And so you have to take a position where they were killed before the mark of the beast. You have, that's the only thing you could possibly do. Alright? So I'm going to let them have that for right now. I'm going, to let, I'm going to let them think that. Okay? If you think that they all get killed before the mark of the beast, great. I can't wait to make you look like an idiot here in just in a few minutes. Alright? But that, that's what a lot of people say when you back them in their corner. And so there's a song that only they know. So the, right here, they're clearly in heaven in chapter 14 because they're singing before the throne. Okay? I mean, right there, they're singing before the throne. They're with the Lamb of Mount Zion. There is no doubt, there is no doubt in chapter 14 that they are in heaven. So, Here's a, here's a few problems. Okay? It doesn't make any sense to say they were all killed in the tribulation because God sealed them to protect them. you understand that? God put a seal on them to protect them. So to say, well, they got killed in the tribulation, well, then why did God bother putting the seal on them if they're just going to get killed anyway? And another problem, they were sealed 
after the sixth seal in Revelation. Y'all get that? The 144,000 don't get sealed until after the sixth seal in Revelation. Well, what does the Bible say in Matthew 24? That's for the Jews. After the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon shall not give her light. We know that's after the abomination of desolation. In chapter 6, we see the same thing. Sun darkened and moon turned to blood. And after that, after the sixth seal, the 144,000 get sealed. Y'all understand that? So, according to pre-trib logic, okay, they're saying the 144,000 all had to get killed before the second half of Daniel's 70th week, but the Bible doesn't show them getting sealed until after this, the first half. Do you all see how that doesn't make any sense? They're all in heaven before the mark of the beast is implemented. This is where I, you know, the, they, they can't get a timeline that doesn't make any sense. That's why Robert Breaker has to have his whiteboard you know, that looks like an advanced calculus problem that written out on there. You know, it's just crazy because it doesn't make any sense. There is no way. There is, there is nothing, there is no way to get around the fact they don't get sealed until after the tribulation. And it's crystal clear in chapter 14, they're in heaven before the mark of the beast has been implemented. So now, how does that make sense in our timeline? Well, it makes perfect sense in our timeline because the mark of the beast comes before the rapture. The mark of the beast comes before that. The 144,000 come from heaven right after the rapture or around the same time as the rapture. So it makes perfect sense for us because I believe we see the uh, rapture in Revelation chapter 14. We're not going to get into that tonight. But, I mean, this... Our timeline has no problems with the 144,000. But the pre-tribbers have a huge problem. So what do they do? They just read you know, 12,000 from the tribe of Judah. 12, and they just talk about the Jews and the Jews. And you know what's going on in Israel. And they go on their little rabbit trails talking about Israel. You know, Pretty soon they're going to get that Temple Mount. We just got to get Trump to bomb them, bomb them Palestinians. You know, did you hear about that? You know, the decree they signed over there the other day. Did you hear just, you know, it was in the news the other day. I just saw that Benjamin Netanyahu belched in public. That was a fulfillment of prophecy right there. You know what I mean? They just, anything happens in the Middle East and it's a fulfillment of prophecy. And they get you sidetracked on all these things. Why they need to get you sidetracked? Because if you start looking very clear at the Bible, you're going to see, wait, something doesn't make any sense. How come the 144,000 are with Jesus in heaven before the mark of the beast has been implemented? How does that work with our timeline when they don't get sealed until after the tribulation? Until after the sun has been darkened and moon turned to blood? It doesn't make any sense. These people are fools. Okay, They're stubborn fools that try to use 144,000 to prove anything. And the thing is, that's one of the things they do. When you start saying stuff about God being done with physical Israel, you know what people always say? What about the 144,000? And I just want to say, you moron. Let's talk about, let's talk about the 144,000. And then you talk, you show them these things and they just look at you like a calf staring at a new gate. They don't know what to do. They have no idea what to do. I don't remember seeing that in any of my college textbooks. No, you have. No, you didn't. And you're not going to see them in there because your t- college textbooks are wrong. They're just dead wrong. So anyway, enough time on that. But you know, they we we see very clearly 
that they were protected from the locusts. Okay? God put a seal on their forehead. The locusts were specifically commanded not to touch those who had the seal of God on their foreheads. Every timeline agrees the locusts come after the second half of Daniel's 70th week. They're there for five months. So the 144,000 are here. All pre-tribbers would agree during the second half of Daniel's 70th week. They all agree with that. So how do they, how do they figure that? How do they reconcile the fact that they are all in heaven with Christ before the mark of the beast? It doesn't make any sense. And so once again, they look like fools. But look what it says. And so in Revelation 14, 4, These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. So, who do I think these people were in the Old Testament? Alright, now, right here, okay, from the, for the next few minutes, okay, everything I've been saying before is just facts, it's Bible, it's irrefutable, there's no two ways about it. I'm right, they're wrong, end of story, okay? Right now what I'm about to tell you though is my opinion, okay? It is my opinion that is at least based on some Bible where they've got nothing, okay? So if you ask them, well, who are the 144,000? Well, you know, they're people, uh, Jews today. Really? There's no tribes today. Oh, well, God's got it all sorted out. God's got it all figured out. That's what they, that's what they always say. You know, God's going to sort that all out. And that's all they've got. That's literally all they've got. Well, let me tell you who I think they are, because notice what it mentions. It mentions they, they are the first fruits unto God and unto the Lamb. I believe that's kind of a way of him telling us who they were. Alright, so let me just give you some opinion. I could be dead wrong on some of this stuff. If I'm dead wrong, you can correct me. And you know what? I won't be mad at you. Alright, but here's just what I think. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, first you need to realize there's more than one kind of first fruits. Because if I, when I show you how these are the first fruits, somebody's going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 to prove it wrong. But look what it says in verse 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. So Jesus Christ, He is the first fruits of those who have risen from the dead, never to die again. Jesus Christ was the first one to do that. Okay? There can be more than one kind of first fruits. Y'all get that? I know that Jesus is the first fruits of them that slept. But it doesn't mean that the 144,000 can't be another type of first fruits. Alright? So I just throw that in there for bonus. Just to um, say, you know, cover the immediate objection many people would have. But in Exodus chapter 23, we see the feast of first fruits introduced, where he's, God's introducing the feast. These feasts often have prophetic, you know, symbolism with them. And in verse 14, it says, Three times shalt thou keep a feast unto me in the year. Thou shalt keep the feast of unleavened bread. Thou shalt eat unleavened bread seven days as I commanded thee in the time appointed of the month Abib. For in it thou camest out from Egypt and none shall appear before me empty. And the feast of harvest, the first fruits of thy labor, which thou hast sown in the field, and the feast of ingathering, which is in the end of the year when thou hast gathered the labors out of the field. Okay? Now, in chapter 14, we're not going to take time to read it, 
but we see a vision, all right, that's symbolic, where you have an angel with a sickle ready to reap, right? And I believe we see the rapture. I believe that is a picture of the rapture. They are getting to reap a harvest, okay? And the rapture. In the beginning of chapter 14, we see the 144,000, it refers to them as the first fruits. And then later, we see another harvest taking place, which is the rapture, which is us. Okay? Keep that in mind. In the Feast of First Fruits, what that was, uh, we'll turn over to Leviticus 23. Let's, let's look at Leviticus 2. It gives a little more detail in Leviticus 23 as far as what they were supposed to do. It says in verse 9, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say to them, when ye come into the land which I give unto you, and shall reap the harvest thereof, then ye shall bring a sheaf of the firstfruits of your harvest unto the priest. And ye shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted for you on the morrow. After the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And ye shall offer that day when ye wave the sheaf, and he lamb without blemish of the first year for a burnt offering unto the Lord. And the meat offering thereof shall be two tenth deals of fine flour mingled with oil, an offering made by fire unto the Lord for a sweet savor, and the drink offering thereof shall be of wine, the fourth part of an hen. And ye shall eat neither bread nor parched corn nor green ears until the selfsame day that ye have brought an offering unto the Lord. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. And ye shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath from that day that ye brought the sheaf of the wave offering. Seven Sabbaths shall be complete." So basically, what you see taking place during that Feast of first fruits, as soon as they would get the first fruit that would be, you know, come up and whatever it was that was growing, they would take that and they would offer it to the priest for an offering. And it was kind of like a pledge. Basically, they were saying, hey, here's the first part of my offering and I'm going to be bringing the rest later. And then 50 days later, we had what was known as the Feast of Pentecost where they would bring the bigger offering in after they had done the full harvest. So what I personally think, I think these 144,000 are just the ones who Jesus presented to the Father first. I think when He rose from the dead, it's possible, alright, once again, I'm still just giving opinion here. Okay, I'm giving my opinion here. I could be dead wrong. I don't want to look like I'm going down a Ruckmanite rabbit trail or anything like this. But I, I personally think that they were the first ones. And then later, okay, when the harvest is fully ripe and ready to go, guess what God's going to do? He's going to reap the rest of it, and that's going to be us. Okay? I believe that's what's going to take place. I think the 144,000 were first, then we are later. So... Look what it says in Matthew 27, alright? This is just, this is just my opinion here, okay? I honestly, this verse is a mystery to me. And because it's a mystery and it's not real clear, I'm not gonna build a doctrine, so I'm not gonna fight for this. But it says in Matthew 27, 51, and behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake and the rocks rent. This is right after Jesus died. And the graves were open, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose. And came out of the graves after his resurrection and went to the holy city and appeared unto many. Okay? It says many, many graves. How many? I don't know. 144,000? I don't know. <laughs> you know, uh, you're just trying to make that fit. 
I don't know what else to do with that passage, right? That's the only gospel where it talks about that. And that's really interesting. So what happened to all those people after they rose from the dead? You know, how many of them were there? Did they go up to heaven with Jesus? You know, I don't know. It's just my opinion, though. When you look at that Feast of first fruits, I do think it is a picture of the rapture. We see that God refers to these 144,000 as the first fruits of God. And so I personally think it's very possible that when Jesus went up to heaven, that He took some saints with Him. And He chose 12,000 from each of the tribes. And He picked 12,000 really good guys from each of the, each of the 12 tribes. I think he took 144,000 of the cream of the crop, basically. You know, he, he's taken the best and he presented them to God. And then later, he's going to go back for the big harvest at Pentecost, spiritually speaking, and he's going to get the rest of us. That's my opinion on that. So I do. But either way, there's no doubt they're Old Testament saints. There's, there's no doubt about that. There's absolutely no doubt about that. My opinion on these other things, I might be right on all of it, and maybe Matthew 27 has nothing to do with them. You know, there, there's no time. But that's just, that's just my opinion. I would never fight for that. Uh, but it's just, it's what I think. But anyway, the bottom line is, the bottom line is there's absolutely no way, there is no way these 144,000 can be Jews that get saved after the rapture. There's no way. It makes no sense. And so, let's go back to Revelation 7 and let's look at arguments against this being the rapture. Alright? Because let's, let's read. Right here we're going to see clearly the rapture. Okay? And I'm going to prove beyond any shadow of a doubt it's the rapture. There's this... I mean, there is no two ways about it. It is the rapture. There's no way to get around it. So, in verse 9... After this, I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. So right here we have a multitude from all over the world that appears before the throne. Well, you know, looks like a rapture. You know, that, yeah, that looks like it, but that can't really be it. Yeah, because Revelation 4 looks more like it. When one guy gets caught up in the Spirit, you know, that's what the pre-tribbers teach. That Revelation 4 is rapture. Because we see a trumpet mentioned. You know, we see, you know, getting caught up. You know, there's so many similarities there. Actually, there's a lot more similarities when you see a multitude from all over the world that appear before the throne. That looks a lot more like the rapture than anything else. And this is one of the contradictions people bring up about this. I think it was Ding Donger that said this, Denlinger, who, who had brought this up. He was talking about how, you know, these, you know, these post trippers, they act like not many people are going to be, you know, alive, you know, whenever, you know, after the midpoint of the tribulation, you know, and yet we see in Revelation 7 where they say there's a rapture, that there's a multitude. You know, that, I mean, there's this massive multitude that no man could number. Hey, bozo, even if you're dead, you're going to go up in the rapture. The dead in Christ rise first. 
we which are alive remain, we will not prevent them that are asleep. It's not just the ones that are living. It's the dead ones too. Okay? These are the kind of contradictions that they come up with that we supposedly have. Alright? That is not a contradiction. Alright? Even if we're dead, I will partake in the rapture. So, just another, just desperate, desperate attempt to just try to find some kind of contradiction in a place where we have no contradictions. So in verse 10, it says, And cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God which sitteth upon the throne under the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders. And about the elders. Okay? Notice that. Because what's another thing they say? The 24 elders. That's the church. That represents the church. Okay? And don't worry, they've got an answer for this. Wait till you hear it. It's great. Alright? I, I love their... You know, rebuttals because they just dig themselves in a deeper hole every time. So wait a minute. We have a multitude appearing that no man can number from all over the world. It can't be, you know, the church, you know, or anything like that. What they'll say is that it's tribulation saints. That's what they'll tell you. Okay? But because notice here, there is a distinction between them and the elders, isn't there? The elders are mentioned separate from this multitude, the 24 elders, because we believe the 24 elders are 24 elders. They believe it's the church. That's what they want to tell you. And so we notice uh, it said, um, four beasts and fell before the throne of their faces and they worshiped God. So right now, we see, you know, they'll say these are all tribulation saints, but this is absolutely retarded because of the fact that everybody doesn't get martyred at the same time. Y'all get that? You don't get martyred at the same time. Okay? There is going to be another resurrection that happens after the millennial reign, but nobody would say this is after the millennial reign. So here we have, even in their timeline, roughly in the middle of Daniel's 70th week, all these people appearing in heaven. And they say those are uh, tribulation saints or tribulation Martyrs. They would include, you know, this. The, many of them then would say too, this is how the 144,000 got into heaven. Okay? This is how the 144,000 got into heaven before the mark of the beast even happened. Just show, shows how ridiculous that is. So, you know, the, the multitude in chapter 5, too, you'll notice, it does not include the souls of the saved. All right? Go back, go back to chapter 5. Let me show you. Because so, they'll try to say the multitude in chapter 5 is the church and those in chapter 7 are the martyrs. Okay, Let's, let's go back and look at that. So it says um, verse 8, And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and hast made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld and heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beast and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Okay, now this massive number, they will say, you know, this is the church, all right? We were 24 elders. 
Now we're 10,000 times thousands, thousands. But wait, let's look at who these, these are again. Look at verse 9, uh, or 11. And I beheld and heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beast and the elders. Alright? And the number of them. It's not mentioning the souls here. Okay? It's talking about the angels and the beast and the 24 elders. So I personally believe that massive number there is just referring to the number of angels that are there. It's not, not the believers, but they have to make it the believers because they've been trying to tell you that the rapture already happened, but it has not happened yet. So, once again, just a massive, massive fail right there. You know, Matthew 5, 11 through 14 and chapter 7 make it very clear there is a distinction from the 24 elders and the multitude that no, no man could number. So, you know, to, for them to try to say that the multitude in chapter 5 is the church, and then those in chapter 7 are just martyrs. It doesn't make any sense. It's just it's a massive clash. The multitude in chapter 5 does not include the souls of the saved. They're not even mentioned. And the souls of believers are not mentioned until chapter 6. And only the martyrs are mentioned in chapter 6. It mentions the souls of the martyrs that were under the throne. In chapter 6, we looked at that last week. So chapter 7, it's clearly referring to those in their glorified bodies because the ethnic diversity is obvious. They're able to look and see that they're from every kindred and tongue, that they're from all over the world when they're all wearing the same thing. They're all wearing white robes, yet they can look at them and they can tell that they're from all over the earth. How else would they know that unless they still had their skin color? Unless they still had some of their, you know, features that made it obvious where they come from. Okay? They were, I know we're supposed to be colorblind, but John wasn't. He was able to tell. You know, and this was a scene that Hollywood would love. Racially diverse. All the ethnicities. All there together. You know? This should, this should make every millennial, you know, excited. They ought to love this passage right here. But truth is, you know, they are, all these things are mentioned because they're in their glorified bodies at this point. And don't let the Ruckmanites convince you that, you know, being black is a curse that God put on Canaan, you know, because of what Ham did to his father Noah. And in heaven, I was, this is what I was, I was taught. I've heard this many times. And in heaven, every curse will be lifted. So black people can get saved and go to heaven, but they won't be black in heaven. So often they'll say black, there's, there will be no black people in heaven. And you know, when people, they'll say that and then when people get all offended, it's like, well no, you know, guys, you know, guys like, uh, you know, T.D. Jakes, if he got saved, you know, he's the first pre- black person thing of, he'd go to heaven, he just won't be black anymore. Alright, now I don't think T.D. Jakes is gonna go to heaven. Alright, but, <laughs> at the same time, uh, you know, I do, I, I personally think black people will be black in heaven. And you know what? All those people down in the Schofield Bible Belt, they're just going to have to deal with it. All right, they might not like that. They want to keep, you know, talking. They they think they're not white supremacists because they're all a bunch of, you know, Jew lovers. All right, but at the same time, they're, you know, they're still white supremacists because guess what? Jews are white. All right, and they are. They they think they can be all down on black people because they're so high on Jews. You know, but listen, even Hitler. Even Hitler said the blonde-haired, blue-eyed people were superior, and he wasn't a blonde-haired, blue-eyed guy. That was probably his way of making it look like he wasn't prejudiced. 
Alright? So, you know, Hitler and, you know, the Schofield Bible Belters, they've all got a lot in common when it comes to uh, racial issues. And I hate to mention that truth, but it's just the truth. So, right here, you know, some quick proofs that Revelation 7 is the rapture. Is first, we have the multitude of people from all over the world appearing before the throne. It definitely looks like the rapture. A whole lot more than Revelation 4 does. It lines up perfectly with the timeline of events in Matthew 24 and 2 Thessalonians 2. Exactly. We went through that last week. We're not going to go over that again. Exact order of events in Matthew 24 happens in Revelation 6. And then sure enough, we see the rapture after the sun is darkened and moon is turned to blood. Just like that, we see the rapture after the sun is darkened and moon turned to blood in Matthew chapter 24. But then... At the end of the day, we don't even need any of that. Okay, The Bible spells it out for us. The Bible spells it out, leaving no doubt that this is, in fact, the rapture. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Now, I covered this in one of my debunking dispensationalism videos, so if you've already seen that, you already know this, but you know what? I'm going to share it again just because I like throwing it in people's face because it's so clear. I love clear Scripture that just, you know, just confuses the daylights out of people and just destroys their doctrine because they're idiots. And it's only confusing because they're trying to make these verses fit their agenda. And it just doesn't work. And it just makes their brain spin. And it's hilarious. But it's real simple if you just know how to read simple English. First Corinthians 15.50 Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. It's interesting, the same thing Jesus told Nicodemus. Okay? Flesh and blood cannot enter the kingdom of God. That's why you have to be born again. Being a Jew is not any advantage in getting to heaven. You must be born again. Verse 51, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality. Now, there is not one person in the world, in the Baptist world, I guess, that would deny that this is talking about our rapture. This is a Pauline epistle to the church talking about our rapture. Not even a Ruckmanite would deny this. Okay, Not even Sam Gipp would say, you know, you're being selfish. Every time you see a rapture, you think it's for you. Even Sam Gipp would say, this is our rapture. Okay? Verse 54. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Okay? What happens when our bodies changed? We are putting on immortality. The Bible says, when that happens, then will be brought to pass. Okay, if something comes to pass, what does that mean? It means it happened, didn't it? When that takes place, then will be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Well, where is that saying at? Okay, go to Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8. Now, Sluter, he made a video showing the connection of these two verses. And he, he didn't know what to do with it. So what he said, it's like a partial fulfillment because we know that in the you know, millennium people are still going to be dying and there's going to be a resurrection and eventually death and hell are going to be cast in the lake of fire. 
So this is only a partial fulfillment. Alright? No. Bible says it will have come to pass. Death is swallowed up in victory. See, where Sluter's confused, alright? And I don't know if he's confused because he's an idiot, or if he's confused because he just isn't seeing the simple truth, or if he just has to pretend to be confused so he doesn't have to acknowledge what the Scripture clearly says. It says, it doesn't say in this passage, and this is what he's implying, when it says death is swallowed up in victory, it means death is over. Is that what it says? No. It says death is swallowed up in victory. That does not mean that death has ended. It does not say that. Okay? That is called, that's attaching a definition to something that's just not there. That is not what that, that passage says. But look at Isaiah chapter 25 and verse 8. It says, He will swallow up death in victory, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces, and the rebuke of His people shall He take away from off all the earth, for the Lord hath spoken it. You all see that? So, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, when the rapture comes, then will be brought to pass the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. Now, why does it say death is swallowed up in victory? What does that mean? Well, think about it. The rapture will be the single greatest victory over death since the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, we have millions of people rising from the dead. That's not a good day for death. Right, death, which is something that's going to come for all of us, Lord Terry's is coming. It's going to hold our bodies in the grave. But one of these days, it's going to lose millions of people that it's never going to get back. Ever. That sounds like a massive loss for death. That sounds like death has been swallowed up in victory. Will that not be a victory when we get resurrected from the dead? That's a huge victory. Is that passage saying that death will be ended? No, it does not say that. Sluter needs it to say that so he can say it's only being partially fulfilled. But that's not what it says. It just says death is swallowed up in victory and the rapture will be the single greatest defeat of death since the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, what an amazing day that's going to be. What a victory that's going to be. And what a loss that's going to be for death. And so when that happens, then that saying will be brought to pass. Look at verse 9. And it shall be said in that day, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for Him. And He will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. We will be glad and rejoice in His salvation. What are we doing right now? We're waiting for the coming of the Lord. What are we doing right now? We're looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We've been waiting for that. We're waiting for that day. Every time somebody dies, we go and we take them to the cemetery, we put them in the grave, and what do we always do? We always read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Why? So we'll sorrow not as others have no hope. Why do we do that? Because we know that we're going to see them again one of these days. When is that day going to be? At the rapture. Are we not waiting for that? That is exactly what we're waiting for. And they try to say, oh, you know, y'all aren't waiting for it, you know. You're looking for the undertaker, I'm looking for the uppertaker. You know, you all think because it's not imminent, you're not looking for him. You know what I was thinking about this today? These retards that want to say the fact that we don't believe the rapture is imminent means 
that, you know, we're just going to go and just do whatever we want to do and just wait till the signs come and then start serving the Lord. That's, isn't that what they say we're going to do? Okay, they don't use Bible to prove eminency. They just say, you know what? If I didn't think the rapture is imminent, you know, i just do whatever I wanted to do. You know, I wouldn't worry about getting right with God until I started seeing the signs. Until I saw the abomination of desolation. And you know what? I believe them when they say that. And I'll tell you why I believe them when they say it. Because that same logic, that same logic should also say then, eternal security is false. You teach people eternal security, that they can be saved and sin and still be saved? Well, man, if that's me, I just, I just go do all the sinning I want. Hey, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. I'm just going to go do whatever I want right now. Okay. Now, these clowns say they believe in eternal security. Okay? But here's the thing. They don't believe in eternal security. You know, they teach, well, if you're really saved, you'll do the works. You know? And many people are honest enough to admit that they don't believe in eternal security. But that same reasoning to say we, you know, us not teaching imminency means we're teaching people to live however they want to the rapture, then they need to do the same thing. You've got to throw out once saved, always saved. Because that's eternal security that's just giving people license to sin. But you know what? Eternal security, that gives us the liberty to actually serve the Lord and do right. And you know what? You know, I said these people, their reasoning just falls apart all the time. But anyway, look at verse 17. So what happens in Isaiah 25 when death is swallowed up in victory? It says God's going to wipe away all wipe away tears from all off all faces. Look what it says in Revelation 7:17. 7, the verse that we say is the rapture. It says for the lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Uh-oh. They got a huge problem. Because even Sluter admits that 1 Corinthians 15 and Isaiah chapter 25 are connected. And how do you say that Isaiah 25 and Revelation 7 17 are not connected? It's the same thing. No, things that are different are not the same. There it says, He'll wipe away tears from off all faces. There it says, wipe away tears from our eyes. <laughs> I, you know that, that's the kind of desperation, all right. You know, you know that, I, that they probably would say that, all right. Don't put it past them. They probably would say that. I haven't heard anybody say that yet. But folks, there is no doubt. This is the rap, this is the rapture. That right there, First Corinthians fifteen tied in with Isaiah twenty five, irrefutable, irrefutable. Isaiah 25 and Revelation 7 tied together. Irrefutable. Okay? Now, they can go and they can try to show where God should wipe away all tears from their eyes after the millennium, but nobody, no pre-tribber thinks what we see in Revelation 7 is after the millennium. So you know what they're going to have to do? They're going to have to create another event. You know, just like they've had to create the two raptures, the three gospels, they got to keep creating these additional events instead of just accepting the plain, simple fact that Revelation 7 is the rapture. They need, instead of accepting the plain and simple fact 
the 144,000, they're not Jews from over in Israel. They are Old Testament saints come back to earth. There is no doubt about it and no timeline that mentions 144,000 is going to make a lick of sense. It's not going to make a little lick of sense. They don't get sealed until after the tribulation and Revelation 14 shows them in heaven before the mark of the beast. That These are things, these are clear facts that no pre-tribber will even try to address. And they're out of arguments. And the, the 144,000 is one of the big ones. That was one of the big things for me. When I was coming around on this, I kept saying, what about the 144,000? What about the 144,000? And the first time I heard a preacher Old Testament saints, I was like, what? I've never heard that before. Well, I had never heard that before. You know? But at the same time, I had heard, and so you say, well, you know, you've got to be careful with this, you know, these new teachings that are out there. Okay, I'll reject a new teaching for a teaching that doesn't even make any sense. For a teaching that's just all over the place, no consistency, I mean, no Bible to back it up, no defining anything biblically, I'll just accept that just because it's something that's been accepted in the last hundred years. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. And you know what? Good luck finding somebody who before Zionism got going, who was teaching that kind of foolishness. Alright? You're gonna have, you're gonna have a hard time with that because there hasn't been tribes in Israel in 2,000 years. So it's just, it's just a joke. And even if you do find some, you know, even if Sam Gipp finds another Ephraim the Syrian quote, it's still not gonna make sense. The 144,000 are in heaven before the mark of the beast. So, either way, either way you look at it, Revelation 7, you, will, you never hear him talk about the second half of the chapter. You hear him talk about the first half so they can talk about Israel. I'm imitating somebody when I say that. But um, I won't mention him right now because I kind of like him. But he's dead wrong on end times. But he, he, he calls them Israel. Like I-S and then real, R-E-A-L. Israel, and he always holds it out wrong. It's so weird. And, and, and then when they when they get going, it's like you know the hundred forty four thousand Jews. You know, for some reason they just like, hold it out. It's like they just love the word so much. They just love they love these. There's there's more adoration when they say Israel and Jews than Jesus. And then they start talking about Jesus. It's like Jesus. That, that, that's how these people are. But anyway, game over. I mean. Seven chapters and we have absolutely destroyed pre-trib teaching in all seven chapters. And you know what? We're just getting started. I mean, there's 15 chapters more to go. And they got nothing. And good luck, good luck finding a pre-trib preacher preaching verse by verse through Revelation. They can't do it. They cannot do it without making a monkey out of themselves. they got to just jump around and cherry-pick verses. That's all they can do. So anyway, with that, let's go ahead and close the word of prayer. Dear Lord, we thank You so much for Your Word. We thank You for uh, a Scripture that's clear and easy to be understood. And dear God, I pray You help us as we <clears throat> try to spread the Word about the truth of the book of Revelation and of end times. Lord, I, I'm so thankful to see the awakening that's taking place in America. Lord, there's more and more preachers that are swallowing their pride and are being open about this. And Lord, I know there's many more who 
are maybe still kind of on the fence, and I pray you'll use these messages to help uh, them see the truth and just uh, at least admit their their teaching is clearly greatly flawed with um, many, many great contradictions. I pray you'll just open the eyes of people in your name we pray. Amen.